Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you from our pop-up Chinese studios here in Beijing. 欢迎来收听 Seneca 播客节目，每个星期由北京泡泡中国录音棚录制的一个时事节目。Well done, William White. <laughs> today, Jeremy. Unprepared translation. Absolutely, no notes, no no nothing. So t- today on Seneca,、uh, we've got a very very special treat for you. We're going to be talking about interpretation. And、uh, we have in the studio with us Jeremy, of course, who is not an interpreter. In fact, you probably you suck at it. From such uh, a yeah, as should I? I'm. Mean, I'd be absolutely terrible at it. As 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 as、uh, I, I've had miserable experiences in trying to attempt interpretation before in, in business meetings and things like that. I'm, I'm absolutely terrible. But we've got a couple of pros with us today,、uh, joining us. Are Lynette Shi.、Uh, Lynette is a native of Nanjing.、Uh, grew up for a while in in Switzerland and has and came back. She has a, a fascinating story, which we'll, we'll let you get into.、Uh, she has been a UN interpreter and translator.、Uh, she is teaching at Beijing Foreign Studies Universe, University, University,、uh, teaching translation. In fact. And we're also joined by William White, who worked for for many years、uh, in the interpreter delegation of the European Commission to China. Has interpreted for European commissioners, ambassadors, a whole bunch of other folks、uh, for various ministries like Mofcon, like the uh, MFA, uh, the NDRC, and、uh, is currently a freelancer. He has a very very wide and and interesting range of jobs that he's done, including interpretation、uh, during the MH370 press briefings at the Lido Hotel here in Beijing. W- welcome to the show, William. Thanks very much. How you doing, Jeremy? I'm doing very well. Oh, good. We、uh, lost our streak of blue sky days today. We did. We did. Pretty day. We're making up for it with just、uh, fascinating content today because. Uh, we we'll be talking about I think something that、uh, many people are are very impressed with. There are、uh, levels of language ability undreamed of by mortals like you and me here present in this in this room. <laughs> and we speak of、uh, interpretation, and I, for me particularly, si- simultaneous interpretation. That's right. Simultaneous interpretation.、Um, let's let's start with just a little bio sketch of each of you.、Uh, how did Lynette? How did you get started as an interpreter? Well, I kind of fell into interpretation. I was actually working as a translator with the journal that at the time was called China Reconstructs. It's called China Today now.、Oh, I remember that well from the seventies.、Yes. When was that? Oh, I started work with them in nineteen seventy as a junior, more like a proofreader, correspondence person, sort of secretary. Um, in the French department, and then I、uh, went to Beida and studied Chinese as a、uh, Gongdong <laughs> Bing Xueyuan for three years, and then when I returned to China Reconstructs at the time, I went into the English department, and so then I became a translator. I was actually working more with translation, and eventually ended up as a reviser, which is sort of the more senior translator. It was my job to look over other people's translations and pick fault with them, you could say. Or correct them, depending on. I was always、it. impressed with the level of English in that magazine, China Reconstructs. I mean, I think it, 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 they've never really the, the current crop. I mean, if you look at at, at English language media that's coming, official English language media, it, it's it's really never reached to those heights. It was perfectly idiomatic, and I was always wondering who are these people who are. And now I know. Now well, I know. we had、uh, a fair number of people who had been educated in the United States previously, and they're, they're all quite elderly now. 
Uh, then there were younger ones, and we did have an American lady who worked for many years with us, and she was the uh, final reviser. So that was translation. Uh, interpretation was translation. is a whole yeah. different kettle of fish. Yes, it was. I got into that because the uh, Foreign Experts Bureau, which was in charge of hiring a lot of the foreign experts who came to work at the uh, foreign language press, used to have meetings and, you know, briefings and uh, parties and whatever, and they used to need someone to interpret. So I got roped in, but that was consecutive. And that was before I'd had any training in consecutive. I hadn't had any training in interpretation at all. You say consecutive rather than simultaneous. That's right. right. Uh, maybe you can explain it. I think probably people know. but You take it in turn, so it's, it takes place consecutively. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that is uh, probably a little less challenging than simultaneous, right? Mm, no, I wouldn't say so. Would you, William? There's more people out there that sort of assume you can just do consecutive untrained. Simultaneous has more of an image as a dark art or something that uh, only a few people can master. But, but I mean, it is difficult it, to do well. It is a dark art for most of us because somebody's speaking and you are translating them in real time. I mean, that is a dark art. You, you may not acknowledge. I mean, it's because of the inversion of the Chinese language because all these de constructions and things like that. I mean, it, 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 it sometimes feels like simultaneous would be impossible. You don't know what the actual meat of the sentence is until toward the end of it's it. It's end-loaded. It's, it's end-loaded, right, right, right. Well, is very it? often that's true. Um, but if you're following somebody as they, for example, break some bad news to you. The bad news will come at the end of the sentence, but by that point, you will be fully expecting it. And I mean, it's not just with Chinese either. I mean, they usually talk about Japanese or German with the verb going at the end, or in the case of German, the nicht coming right at the end. But people are usually expecting it when it comes. Okay, I I got off track a little bit. I was talking about how Lynette got into it. So you had been talking about how you worked then in these meetings. Yeah, I started off doing consecutive. And then in 1979, uh, um, I heard about the fact that the United Nations was going to start a interpreter translator training course at the number one foreign language institute. Um, And uh, so I applied for that and took a series of examinations and got into the course. And for that course, we were trained specifically for the United Nations, and the United Nations hardly uses consecutive at all. I can't say never, because there might be bilateral situations where they still do, but Mm -hmm. for most United Nations conversations and conferences, they use six languages, right? The six 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 official languages languages of the UN. So we train specifically in simultaneous. They are French English, Arabic, Russian, Chinese, and Spanish. Spanish, right? mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes. Right. Lynette, can I go ask you just a little bit further back in your past? Because you have mm. a very unusual biography. Uh, you know, <laughs> the people of your generation, there are not many who were able to move between Europe and China True. in the 60s and 70s. Mm. Can, can you explain a little bit about your, 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 your family background and how you came to have such an, an interesting uh, uh, okay. uh, biography? <laughs> Yes, well, um, <laughs> uh, yes, well, my father was a doctor and worked at the World Health Organization in Geneva. And so that's why I was brought up in Geneva and went to school there at the international school. And then in 1966, he retired and we came back to China. Good year to come back to China. Well, we came back. Well, nobody. This is, of course, where there was no anticipation. We had no idea what was going to happen because we actually arrived early. We arrived in May. So before everything actually. Before bloody August. uh, Yeah, before everything kind of blew up. So we arrived back. And um, yeah, that's how I was in China at the time. So I was about 17 when I came back. Wow. 
And uh, I actually was, uh, I like to say I was semi-literate in Chinese because though I could speak kitchen Chinese, I really couldn't read very much. That, that was me too. Right? And I couldn't write very much. And I'd gone, had Chinese lessons in Geneva in Switzerland. But you know what it is. You learn three characters, you forget two, <laughs> <laughs> that sort of thing. So it was quite difficult at the beginning. My mother bless her heart, sat me down and we did four hours of Chinese every day because there was no school to go to at the time. By by the fall of 1966, all the schools were closed. So the Huachao Buxiao, which would have been where I would go to brush up my Chinese, was officially closed. And of course, all the other schools closed. So there was nowhere to actually learn Chinese in a school setting. So my mother just took it upon herself to um, teach me Chinese. With your overseas ties, with your father being a professional, uh, surely you came under suspicion Oh, yes. Well, not so much at the beginning, but eventually by 1969, when um, there was a a concatenation of several issues. One was that there was the uh, trouble with the Soviet Union. So there was a move for a lot of people, a lot of organizations to move out of the city, right? It was the uh, going away from the city. Um, And uh, we, uh, a a lot of... um, our neighbors, specifically our neighbors, who were ironically Chinese who had returned from Indonesia, decided they wanted to nalgami. They were going to make revolution. And so they uh, decided that we were a very bourgeois family because we came back from Europe and that my father had worked for the United Nations. Of course, he must be a spy. And so we got into a bit of trouble at that particular time. Yes. No, no. Hmm. Anything you want to go into or... Something. Oh, not particularly. It's um, it was a very interesting experience. It didn't last very long. We were lucky, um, but uh, yeah, it was a bit of a shock. It wasn't exactly what I was expecting. No, coming to the <laughs> <laughs> yes, but that was actually before I started work because then I started work in 1970 at the Foreign Language Press. So mm. when all of that had blown over, everything was back hunky dory, and uh, so I was actually. Um, Assigned. It was Fenpei Gongzuo. I was assigned. But I was very lucky because a lot of people didn't get any work. But because of my special situation. I need to ask, did you know Rui Ali or, or Gladys Young? Or oh, anything? yes. I knew Gladys Young. I knew her Israel husband. Epstein. Oh, yes. Yeah. Epi was our big, big boss. Yeah, I knew Epi. Wow. And uh, I knew Gladys and I knew um, Yang Xianyi. Uh-huh, they were at that time working in China, uh, Chinese literature, the journal, mm-hmm, Chinese mm-hmm. literature. And it's through them that I actually got to translate Lao She's Luo Tu Xiangzi. Oh, you translated Luo Tu Xiangzi? Yes, oh, wow. which is in English is called Camel Xiangzi. Camel Xiangzi, yeah. I, I read right. that very, I'm sure I read your translation. Well, it's in a, a bilingual version now. The only one that's actually available is a bilingual version. Wow. Yeah. And that was before Lao Shu had... No, Lao Shu died in oh, Lao 68. Was, yeah, he right? was gone by then, yes. Yeah, he, he, yeah. Yeah, so this was in... So the book came out in 1979. So I must have started it in about 77 or 78. Mm, yeah. mm, mm, mm. And I did most of the translation of that when I was down at the uh, cadre school, Wu Qi Gan Xiao. And there was no typewriter. I did it all by in long hand. Oh, my God. <laughs> With my uh, copy of the thesaurus, my paperback copy of the thesaurus and an Oxford dictionary. And they didn't it. have Baidu Translate or Pleco English Dictionary. Chinese no, dictionary and there was no, hand. of course, no computer, no nothing. Uh, but well. yeah. Hmm. <laughs> William, what about you? Tell us about your your uh, adventures as a as a, an interpreter well, and how you got started. Well, really matches that. Um, I ended up, I suppose the one thing in common is that we both sort of ended up doing this by accident. Mm. In my case, yeah. it was simply as an excuse to come back to Beijing. I'd been in Beijing in 
1998-99 for mm -hmm. one year, which is a fairly exciting time to be here. Absolutely. Darko at the time. And then this job came up later on. Somebody in Brussels um, um, asked me at the end of an email, well, by the way, how good is your Chinese? Because there's this urgent opening in a diplomatic setting. And it turned out that this job had been created, um, interpreter, and because of the rules, it had to be a European citizen who they employed, and they couldn't find anyone qualified to do it, so instead they <laughs> hired me. And um, what kind of a learning curve were you? You had none, no formal training as an interpreter prior to that? Is that, no, is that what you're suggesting? But, but that's how a lot of people actually yes. start out. If you, yeah. if you go to most ministries in Beijing, you'll find that the people at most meetings are interpreting haven't had any training as interpreters. Oh, really? E yeah. Even now, you know. Even now, yeah. It's not just that they get into it without training. They they continue to have a career without official formal training. Well, they don't get made to do it for that long. But um, the two ministries that do have a significant numbers of trained interpreters are the Ministry of Commerce and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Foreign Affairs has its own training program, um, but the rest they tend to just find somebody whose English is what they think is good and just throw them in there to do it. So I was really in the same boat as a lot of other people sitting across from me and um, just picked up a bit over time and found that, you know, I enjoyed doing it. And maybe I didn't enjoy doing it for the same people every day or on the same subjects every day, but I certainly enjoyed doing it. So in the end, I quit my job and went off to do some proper training. And where did you do your training? I was in Shanghai. At, uh, there's a small program in Shanghai, which had only been running for two or three years at the time. And what's involved in that training? I mean, what's what's a typical school day like during an interpreter training? A lot of hard work. I can imagine. A lot of repetitive practice back and forth again and again and again, yes. Well, it varies a bit by where you're training, but the way that you start out is really just by having somebody tell stories and somebody else repeats it in another language. It's like you're telling somebody a joke, except you're just repeating it in another language. Mm, and you mm -mm. move on from there... You start off doing it by memory, you don't take any notes, and then it gets a bit longer, there's a bit more detail, and then you start learning to take notes. And I had to unlearn a lot of the stuff that I had uh, <laughs> picked up when I was untrained. You, you mentioned jokes, so I, I can't imagine that those would be particularly easy. So many of them are based on puns and, and on, on sort of double entendres of language. Uh, how do you manage to, to translate you know, humor across from English to Chinese and vice versa? Well, I'm generally not. Um, you don't manage very well. I mean, it's quite fulfilling if you do manage to think of something, but yeah, there's not that much you can do apart from just explain or maybe just to tell the story, but you know, ham it up slightly. I mean, <laughs> I mean, could you're I, not there as an actor. Could I go back to the, the, the qualification question? So w what are the major qualifications for interpreting that people might uh, do if, if they're interested in a career like this? You first of all have to have a sufficient language proficiency. So I was teaching at the Monterey Institute of International Studies in California, um, taught there for many years in the Chinese program. And what we look for are people, first of all, with a certain um, proficiency in English and Chinese. Uh, in interpretation, we call it the A language and the B language. Mm -hmm. So the A language is your mother tongue and your B language would be your foreign language. Uh, it goes from A, B to C. 
after that, there are no more classifications. Mm-hmm. So C would be a very passive language, whereas a B would be still fairly active. So for the Chinese-English language pair, you have to be active in both of these languages. You have to be able to go back and forth, not just... nobody else that's going to do no, it. No, nobody else is right. going to do it. Otherwise, for, for like in the United Nations, just to back up a little bit, the United Nations has the six languages, but all of the languages, well, four of them, English, French, Spanish, and Russian, only work into that language. But the Chinese booth and the Arabic booth have to work both ways. Uh-huh. So obviously for our language pair, you need to be quite proficient in both of them. So that would be the first thing we look for as qualification. Second, we do require that all students at least have a bachelor. They have to have a, um, a university degree of some kind, mainly because of um, background information. Um, right. Unless, of course, they've been working for years and picked up a lot of stuff on their own. Otherwise, no. We, so that's pr- primarily what they are. And How then, often does background information actually uh, prove to be the pain point for you? Where I mean, I, I can imagine somebody rattling off a lot of species of fish that I have no idea how to translate. or. or well, that you would be preparing for. You would not be expected to come into a meeting which is highly technical for fish or shrimp or metals or things like that <laughs> without any preparation. I mean, that's one of our prime principles. You do not go into a conference without some kind of preparation, and that would its terminology would be one of the things. But background information, just general background information, you know, the, the world wars, for instance, uh, important dates in the histories of both China and uh, English-speaking countries, uh, cultural issues, all of that you, is part of your background knowledge. You know, what is Christmas? Why is it important for, for Western countries? And why is Spring Festival important for Chinese? And that, that's the sort of thing, background information that comes, of course, from your cultural um, background yourself, but also from a broader education. So you have these basic prerequisites. Yes. But then, so say I, I've got those prerequisites, mm. I want to be an interpreter. What, right. what should I do? What course should I do to be qualified? Well, you should probably join a uh, two-year course, uh, depending on where you want to be. Uh, Shanghai. You could do Shanghai. You could do Beiwai. They have their Gaofan Xue Yan. Isn't that what it's called now? The UN training course became the... Yeah，高翻学院。Yeah，高翻学院。Yeah，高翻学院。Yeah，高翻学院。Yeah，高翻学院。Yeah，高翻学院。Yeah，高翻学院。Yeah，高翻学院。Yeah，高翻学院。
That's probably something that's slightly different uh, when you take what we do, which is conference interpreting, which is very much about the, the message that someone wants right. to put across, and, say, court interpreting, which has a slightly different set of principles and uh, where you're supposed to be you know, as aggressive as... I mean, that, that's OK. I mean, be as aggressive as... Or as vulgar. ...cross-examining right. you, but as unsophisticated as the scared witness cowering on the other side of the courtroom. Uh, but with conference interpreting, which is what we do, I don't see it as editing at any point what you're doing for people. And I haven't come across that many people that I would really see as um, you know, truly unsophisticated and really unable to express themselves. But what about, do you ever get the urge to, I mean, I, I've done some of the kind of thing that if you speak a little bit of Chinese and English in China, you get roped into as you have Kaiser as, you know, a casual sure, interpreter. of course. Um, most notably at tech conferences. And there have been a few times where I've willingly twisted the words of the person that I was interpreting for um, just because I kind of thought it was better. Um, I mean, don't you ever well, I, feel I tempted to, to... I have to go <laughs> a bit further into that because you know, there's the message and there's the words. And what is important is the message. If you start thinking too much about the words, then you end up saying things that people really just don't say very often in that other language. You know, they just don't generally <laughs> say it like that. And what, what about some um, colossal blunders? Have you have you had any disasters as a translator, as or as an interpreter, where you've you've simply gotten something wrong and caused international incidents? Yeah. <laughs> Fortunately, no international incidents, but I've certainly been caught off guard. Yeah. Mm. And what about dramatic? I mean, when you were at the UN, I mean, were you there when I was there in Idi the Amin 1980s. showed up? Okay, okay. So. I was there in the nineteen eighties, so uh, from eighty one to eighty five, actually. Uh, I don't remember Idi Amin coming. I do remember Yasser Arafat came for a special uh, Palestinian conference mm, and the mm. Swiss army was out in force with tanks and uh, <laughs> uh, snipers on the roof of the UN. Uh, and um, my colleague and I were working at a conference and we used to go out onto the roof balcony to take a bit of fresh air. Well, we went out and um, suddenly out of nowhere arrived this person with a gun and told us to get back in because <laughs> it was dangerous out there. So, yeah. Um, le- le- can I can I tell you about a joke that I failed to make? Oh, absolutely. Okay. So this was at the Conference of Namibia back in the days before Namibia was independent, okay? Uh, and so there was this conference going on in Paris in, a, in one of the old palais. So they didn't have proper booths and they just had portable booths and we were sitting right behind the Chinese delegation which was sitting in a row. So I was looking at the backs of their heads. And uh, the Chinese delegation and the American delegation got into an argument purely uh, procedural of should we discuss this issue before lunch or should we discuss it after lunch? So they went back and forth before, before, after, after. And finally, the Russian delegate got annoyed and said, well, Mr. President, this reminds me of a joke. And here I am interpreting into Chinese, right? And he says, the joke goes like this. This young woman um, went to the doctor and said, doctor, what should I do to not become pregnant? And the doctor said, drink a glass of cold water. And the young woman said, ah, yes, but before or after? And I got stuck <laughs> because going into China, I had no idea this, where this was going, right? So there was no anticipation. I wasn't able to turn it around, as you were saying. You know, some things you got to turn around in Chinese. And, of course, in Chinese, you can't say before without, before what? Right. Or after 
after what? You have to reconstruct the whole sentence to be able to get the pun across. 在那之前还是在那之后？ Yeah, 在那之前还是在那之后 ？Well, what? 先喝之前。Yeah, 是先喝之后喝，或者是就喝水。You know, be able to get sort of thing. Well, so I, I just, I, I collapsed there. I mean, I just totally, I couldn't say anything. My mind wasn't working very quickly. And the, the everybody else, the, the president、uh, banged the table with his gavel and said, "Oh, very good. So we will now break for lunch." And everybody streamed out laughing, and the Chinese delegation sat there and didn't know what was going on. It was really quite embarrassing, and they turned around and glared at me, you know. And I, oh gosh,、yeah. uh, this is the, a rare moment where a joke that I'm going to interject actually has something to do with it, because you know it's a sort of before or after joke. Uh, 有一老农民去看医生，然后医生问他哪儿疼，啊 ，he points at his crotch. He says, "Ah,"、uh, the 医生 says, "Gao an tong." He says, "Bu bu bu." 搞搞以前已经疼。Okay, so for you non-Chinese speakers, there. So I mean, it doesn't work. Again, this is one of those things that you would not be、work. able to to translate because no, the word for、uh, so、uh, uh, an old peasant goes to see the doctor, and and the doctor asks him where does it hurt, and he points at his at his, his crotch, and、uh, the doctor knowingly says, Ah, your gawan, your testicles hurt. And、uh, gawan, you know, of course, as it, it sounds like, or it's it's a perfect homophone for. Uh, you, af- after you did, after you did it, it hurt. No, it's before I did it, it already hurt. Right, right, right. I don't know if we want to put that on there, do we? <laughs> oh, no, we absolutely do. You'll decide how to do that. It's a fairly relaxed.、Podcast. It's a very relaxed. Okay, you'll very decide. Relaxed. He told the joke. Not you. You don't need to worry. <laughs> right, right, right. You don't need to worry. This will not reflect badly on you and your、yeah. jobs. Well, but my colleague turned to me and said, "Why didn't you finish interpreting the joke?" <laughs> and I looked at him and I said, "Well, you finish it then. I can't finish it. I don't know what to say." You know. <laughs> <laughs> who are some of the, the the working interpreters that I might know who, who you're really、uh, impressed with? I mean, one that I see a lot、uh, is the U.S. Embassy's interpreter, Jim Brown. I, I've actually never worked with him. Have you worked with him, William? I've worked on you know, events where he's also been there, but we've never been on the same you know, interpreter team. Or he he's generally there to do consecutive or sit right next to whoever it is, Hillary Clinton or. Whoever the president is at the time, so you know, I've had I've had a few contacts with him.、Um, I mean, he seems to be pretty good to me. He's been there since、uh, 1980 or 1981.、Right. Mm. Um, you can go back and you find pictures of、uh, Reagan meeting Deng Xiaoping, and there's spittoons on the floor. <laughs> Brown looked like when he was a little bit younger, and he's of course. I mean, rumor has it that he's approaching retirement, but、um, he's he's very much in house、right. for the U.S. Embassy. He's an institution. Yeah, the difference there,、huh? is that he gets flown over to Washington D.C. or wherever when there's something big happening in the U.S. involving China. A slightly different status to the few other in-house interpreters that are here in Beijing.、Mm. <laughs> he has the advantage of being in that position and having seen it all for a long, long time. So there are a lot of things that he's very familiar with. If you suddenly get dumped into a situation like that. Having to do what he does can be very, very difficult. The you context, you, you yes, just don't have this massive、exactly、database、it. of context. Exactly, brand, exactly,、right? and also you don't know all the、uh, things that have gone on behind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And to some extent, you know, the, the ceremony of the whole thing. I yes, mean, obviously, these things are designed to impress. You have journalists around for the first five minutes, and only for the first five minutes, then they're all told to leave. But you know, the only way to really overcome that is to just get used to it. Yes, you have to do it a lot. Which is I can't stand consecutive. I don't like all that.
Um, Consecutive translation is to me like a, a crime against humanity, having had to sit through so many meetings. Oh in China. dear! Right. I mean, it just <laughs> lengthens it. Lengthens it. <laughs> you just wish everybody should be bilingual or have simultaneous, but consecutive is just horrible. But Some do you notice? Argue sorry, that it actually has its virtues simply because you can sit there and plan your next move. For the speaker, yes, but for the audience, no. <laughs> well, have you noticed that Xi Jinping and all his meetings now? They everybody has got a little head a earphone, little headset, yeah, yeah, little earphones mm-hmm. on. So that I actually spoke to somebody and they said, yes, he really likes simul, <gasps> simultaneous. Well, good for him. That'll end a lot of boring meetings. Well, not end. It'll halve the time. Well, I think it'll just meetings. speed things up yeah. a lot, and the conversation becomes much more direct because you're mm-hmm. hearing it right away and having to sit there and mm-hmm. listen to all this going on. But you know, the six way, as far as I understand, the six party talks. Six party talks. talks in the early days were all consecutive. Can you imagine? Oh, oh God, my how gosh. laborious. That must be the most boring thing in the universe. Well, it was so difficult to organize, too, you know, because everybody has to take their turn and all this sort of thing. And, and between North Korea and Chinese oh. government officials and their oh, dear, uh, dear. tendency to uh, being rather private. In, in private sessions, do you are you obliged to sign some sort of an, a non-disclosure or... or Occasionally that becomes something formal, so occasionally we do find ourselves signing confidentiality agreements, but it's part of the professional ethics that we yeah. follow. So yeah. it's, it's much simpler than that. In fact, if there aren't journalists present, then you assume that it's confidential. Uh, okay. And we refuse to be interviewed by journalists. So if a journalist comes up to you afterwards and says, oh, what did they say just now? Can you? Sorry. I forgot. But can I go back to what I was sort of trying to ask earlier, which is, like, as an interpreter, you're in this quite strange position. I mean, you're almost like an actor in the sense that you have to... You are. You know, uh, basically, well, interpret, I suppose, somebody else. And, I mean, don't you sometimes find yourself not liking the person you're interpreting for? (laughs) You know, not liking what they say? Or, like, do you ever have a human reaction where you just kind of think... I'm saying things that I don't want to say. Oh, yes, frequently. That's why Simul is good, because you can switch off the mic and turn to your partner and say, what was all that nonsense? And then you switch it on and you... Be careful. Be careful. You have to be careful that you do switch off. You have to be very careful that you switch off the mic. William, you're a freelancer now. So where do your gigs come from? It's, it's quite a nice range in Beijing, I and mean, some of it is embassies and the like. Um, a lot of it is things like uh, foundations, um, NGOs, people who run talking shops of all sorts, um, the occasional big business um, runs conferences on China. These tend to be rather common still. Right. And a few other surprising things as well, quite a few luxury brands. Um, one of the more pleasant places that I've interpreted is inside a Rolls Royce, because <laughs> it was the quietest place anywhere in that building. Um, you should just bring one with you wherever you go. I mean, you can with all these gigs, you can probably afford one now, and it pays well. I wouldn't say that we're as well paid as lawyers, but it pays reasonably well. Yeah, yeah. Well, could we talk? I mean, speaking of that, uh, what? What would you say to a young person? Because, I mean, our listeners, quite a lot of them are young people studying Chinese with an interest in Chinese, looking for a career that will bring them to China and in contact with Chinese culture. What would you say to young people thinking about interpretation as a career? Is it a good career? And what are the good things? What are the bad things? What's it like on a day-to-day basis? Well, first of all, 
you have to look at the sort of person the question's coming from. I mean, I, I get a lot of email inquiries uh, because people see that, oh, he attended you know, this particular interpreting course. Okay, let's email him. And flat out, people I don't know, you know what's the rate of return yeah. of this course? <laughs> Just assuming that you measure it the same way you do an MBA or the average <laughs> income of a graduate. It doesn't quite work like that. No. Um, if you're contemplating a freelancer's existence, then it's best to already have some working experience. It doesn't matter what kind of work experience, under your belt before you start. Um, but there's lots of good things about being a freelance interpreter or a freelance anything once you get there. I, mean, you know, I worked 103 days last year, and that's considered a lot. That's um, huge. Well, that, that was slightly abnormal. Last year was slightly abnormal. I, I, I hear that, and I think that's, you know, that's 262 days of, of fucking around. <laughs> but you have to, you have well, to understand. You have to spend some time preparing. Okay. <laughs> you have to understand that uh, the freelancers, it's, it's sort of a boom or bust situation, okay? You're not working every day <coughs> of the week. So if you, if you can average out for one year, if you can average out for two days a week, you're doing very, very well. Oh, okay. You yeah. have to have the maturity as well to not think, ah, payday, I'm going to blow it all on cooking horse that's any that's any freelancing but i mean would you do do you think i mean if you're a suitably qualified is there a reliable stream of work it, both in china and europe the united states markets are different markets are different they depend on the language combination so if you have some exotic languages uh, you have to be in the right place where those exotic languages are used. I'm not so sure. Well, nowadays, you never know with uh, Arabic and uh, Portuguese and all that coming up. You, there might be more and more. But I still think there's a less of a market for, say, like Chinese and Burmese or Chinese and Laotian and Chinese and Thai. One the market is think, very limited, yeah. whereas Chinese English. It's got to be the well, biggest. Chinese English. So where, where are the hotspots for Chinese English? Very simple. Um, you either base yourself in Beijing or Shanghai because that's where yeah, that's nearly where, all of the work that's is. That's where the action is. Anything elsewhere, you just travel to where it's happening. And I don't know what you'd say, but um, to me, that seems to be either stable or you know, still slightly growing. That I mean, there's nobody that has their finger on the whole picture, if you like, because they only see how much work they themselves get. And the mm. two of you just came back from. In your email, you would just made you would just return from. Oh, that's next week. Next week we're in Addis Ababa. Oh, okay, right, right, right. That's right. We we managed to schedule in this week before your trip to Addis. That's that, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yes. what's that? It's the uh, General Assembly for the Association Internationale d'Interprètes de Conférences, which is the International Association of Conference Interpreters. Wow. Okay. It's okay. our professional it's profession. organization. Yes. Held in Addis Ababa. I'm sorry? Held in Ethiopia. Well, this time it's, uh, yes. Last time we were in Buenos Aires. Uh, So the regions, we have a number of regions in the association, and they can um, become candidate cities, so to speak. They can make a proposal Mm. to host host the conference. It's once every three years. So for the association, it's quite a big deal. So yes. he's soaking up some yesigawat and kitfo with delicious oh, injera bread. Oh, have you tasted that? Is it oh, good? It's delicious food. Oh, really? It's some of the world's best food. Wonderful. So now do, I'm uh, forward to that. Do you have kind of like in in, in jokes uh, about <laughs> that you tell to each other? In jokes. Two interpreters walk into a <laughs> <laughs> two interpreters walk into a bar. I mean, is there is there some kind of professional humour? Well, there's plenty of. I mean, it's it's more on the side of in jokes rather than stuff that's going to be funny to everyone else. I mean, 
you could say, for example, that, oh, guess what job I do? We tend to work in four or five star hotels. We tend to get paid quite often in cash, but then customers don't really know what they're going to get and often hire you based on the first person that's available or sometimes even what you look like. Well, you're and a hooker. And then they discard you when they're done. And they discard you. That's brilliant. What, what, what fun. Oh, my God. Uh, I'm, I'm really, really... I feel like I've learned an awful lot about this profession that I know nothing about. And I know who I'm going to call next time my company needs a good simultaneous interpreter. So, uh, great. I've got your numbers. Jeremy, to get back to what you're saying, what would you say to a young person about the Ah, profession? Well, it's a very challenging profession because uh, you are constantly encountering new subjects. For instance, your exotic fish. Or it could be, as I did one on rock mechanics, of which I have not a clue. Rock mechanics. Yes, rock mechanics. The, the kind mechanics of, of rocks. The like, mechanics like of rocks. And, and yes. Like that, right? yeah. It's a about when people dig tunnels and they have to That's right. what's going to happen when they dig this bit Exactly, right. exactly. When they dig tunnels or they put in a dam or they build a big building, they have to know what's going to happen. Is it going to subside or not? Anyway, that sort of thing. So you could you get that. And, but you also, what did we do the last time? We did Sotheby's, so we did yeah, that art. Was on, well, was jewelry as well. We did jewelry, but we did, You, you yes, work together prints. as a team often, it sounds like. Always. Well, Always. No, no, oh, well, interpreters, yeah. no. Work together now and again. Yeah, but oh, okay. interpreters always, done by a team. always work as a team. I see, I see. And you rotate. So you uh, Chinese usually rotates on a twenty-minute basis. Okay. Okay. If you go any further than that, if you go half an hour, you can probably up, just yeah. about manage. If you go any further than that, you're probably going to end up, as we say, ting wu ju fan liang ju. Ting wu ju fan liang ju. Okay. Here, five sentences. You, you can only manage two. two. Right. Yes. Hmm. Just have one thing in passing. In Beijing, there's actually quite a lot of work to do with art, and particularly modern art. Something unusual about the Beijing market. Hmm. It must be very difficult to translate all all that oppressively, like obtuse, like deliberately strange well, postmodern language. I mean, it is moods it of alienation. Artists, like artists, I find like refreshingly easy, very easy to follow, very human. Sometimes it's it the people who write the fucking catalogs, right, 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 and in particular those who are, still aren't very sure of themselves. The right. art critics are terrible. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. You yeah. sometimes yes. don't know what they're actually saying. Well, you know? neither do that. Neither they choose that. these very fancy words, and it's awfully hard yes. to uh, <laughs> to find an equivalent, particularly when you don't know what they mean. Not just art critics. I mean, have you interpreted at uh, academic conferences? Oh, yes. Oh, dear, oh, dear. Yeah. Oh, I can tell you a joke from my very earliest days. This is back in 1979. Right at the beginning, you know, Geiger Kaifang was starting off, and a group of American academics came, and uh, we were still in training at the time at the uh, UN training course and so we were each assigned one academic and they were all economists which we you know, it's kind of difficult anyway, so one of them, I was sitting with him and he launched into this speech about something or other, I couldn't understand a word he said so I turned to him and I said, would you mind saying that in a more simple way? I can't understand what you're saying. And he laughed and he said, oh yeah, okay, okay okay. So he started again and he and it was just very ordinary stuff. It wasn't anything fancy, but he'd couched it in that ghastly academic, you academies, know, yeah. academies and everything was in terms of this and in terms of that and all this sort of stuff. And it was, um, yeah, very difficult to understand. So if you're not used to that, it's very hard. Mm, mm. Absolutely. So we move to recommendations. Okay. I'm going to recommend um, 
James Fallows' recent piece in the December issue of The Atlantic uh, on the American military. Um, it's just an absolutely outstanding piece called The Tragedy of the American Military, where Fallows essentially makes the case that our disconnect from the military, you know, we, we, we pay lip service, we profess to honor the troops, and uh, are they're... they're, they're uh, we, we can't joke about them. We, we don't parody them now in literature as we did in World War II. We don't make, you know, fun at all of, of the military. But the reality is we know nothing about their lives. They're more distant from the center of American society than ever before. And this is leading us to uh, really sort of cavalier uh, decisions about deployment of force. I'll pass now on to, to Lynette. Okay. I'm just going to stick in the field of uh, interpretation and translation, seeing that's what we've been talking about. Good. There might be people out there who would be interested in finding out a little bit more about it, particularly your young people, as you were saying. So there was a book that came out in 1998, and it's called The Origins of Simultaneous Interpretation. It is by a lady called Francesca Gaiba, and it's published by the University of Ottawa Press. Uh, it is a history of simultaneous interpretation at the Nuremberg Trials, oh, wow. which is when simultaneous interpretation really became absolutely vital to that particular event and where it was used on the largest scale for a legal, uh, a legal situation. Very, very important in the history of simultaneous interpretation. Only actually possible because by that time the technical... Uh, the technology was the there. The technology right. was there, and they were able to have uh, earphones and microphones mm. and several mm-hmm. languages going at the same time. And in the book, there's some really uh, interesting accounts of the technological failures, the technical glitches, uh, the way it was organized, and uh, who sort of, again, fell into interpretation, because a lot of these people, well, none of them had had any training. And Fascinating. They ranged from the age of 18 to quite a bit older Students, teachers, lawyers, doctors, all sorts of people were recruited. So that's the origins of simultaneous interpretation. Uh, Dates from 1998. Another book that I think is really very relevant is called Translation and Globalization by Michael Cronin, uh, published in 2003 by, is it Routledge or Routledge? I don't know how you're supposed to pronounce that. Um, And this is a book that uh, talks about the relationship between translators, language, and power, and Mm. describes issues such as localization, which is what is now done for a lot of IT issues, well, a lot of products, and the hegemony that that actually provides, that gives uh, to the country that does the localization or the language which is used. Um, It also talks about the new use of the internet for translation and how the whole geography of translation is changing because of the use of the internet. Uh, things like that uh, that I think are extremely important and relevant to us today. Thank you, Lynette. Jeremy, are you ready? Should we move on to William White? Yeah, I, I, I don't think I've recommended... Have I recommended Laszlo Montgomery's China History podcast? About three times. On oh, on tea. No, 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 we haven't. No, right. Yeah, um, The ten-parter. Yeah, is, yeah is, that, that's what I, I wanted to recommend. Sorry, it kind of blanked on me. Uh, how so is it so far? I've, I've, I've listened it's, to it's the first good. one. I mean, it's the history of tea in China. It's a great wow. podcast. All the tea in China. Right. You know, in Laszlo's usual uh, style of uh, kind of sunny, kind of Californian... Attitude meets Chinese history, uh, and if you're interested in tea, which you should be if you're interested in China, it's uh, it's a very easy to listen to, fun romp through tea history. Marvelous! I will I will give that one listen. I mean, I I've had you know, 
have to get through cereal, so <laughs> finally. <laughs> William, what do you have for us? I have three things. Okay. Um, firstly, just still on the subject of interpreting, there's a website. It's just called interpreting.info, mm-hmm. and it's where you can ask questions that will be answered by practicing interpreters if you want to find out more about the profession. The second one um, is a Chinese language recommendation. It's simply the magazine Yazhou Zhukan, or YZZK.com. Yazhou Zhukan, yeah. Newsweek. Stylistically, I think it's one of the best magazines you can possibly read in Chinese at the moment. Um, it really is something very, very different. It's a breath of fresh air, and you can access it online as well. They have a reasonably good online edition for which you need a VPN. Ah, where is it published? It's published in Hong Kong. Okay. And it's blocked in China. As far as I know, yes. Yes, it's part of the law. It's blocked in China. Okay, okay. It has too many sensitive people. And you had a third. Yeah, I have a third one. And this third one is slightly unusual. It's somebody who's just passed away as of New Year's Eve last year. You're recommending a a dead person. His work, the photographer (laughs) photographer from Kingston, Jamaica, called Peter Dean Rickards. R-I-C-K-A-R-D-S Peter Dean Rickards Um, Some of his work is absolutely astonishing He has just passed away He introduced a childhood friend of mine To his current wife And some of the stuff he's done Not just with gangland shootouts In Kingston, Jamaica But also with the dance hall scene And all sorts of other bizarre topics I mean he goes elsewhere as well He goes to Haiti He goes Mm. to where they slaughter animals On the spot, on the street he does all sorts of things, and it's really quite unique. Well, thank you both so much for coming. This is a really enlightening and, and very entertaining podcast. Merci beaucoup. Merci beaucoup. Thank you to you. Thank you both. And happy new year to you both. Uh, we will see you next week on the Cynic Podcast. Bye-bye.